6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. The Exodus generation was a redeemed people. They were redeemed by what? Blood on the doorpost and on the lintels. They were redeemed people. And this redeemed people failed to heed God's instruction and they were judged for disobedience. Did they lose their salvation? Of course not. Were they sent back to Egypt? No. They died. That's not the end of it. That's the end of their life. But they died without getting their inheritance, the land. Okay. All these, the entire epistle and certainly all these warnings are written to believers. Let's understand that right up front. Many people who have had difficulty with this passage we're dealing with have tried to figure, well, gee, maybe they weren't really believers. And these do not represent any chance of loss to the past aspect of salvation. Nowhere in this epistle is it not taken for granted that they're justified by Christ. So there's no, these, this, we have the eternal security. If I wanted to take the time to beat this to death, we could put here a dozen passages to nail eternal security. I'll use John 10, 28 and 29 as one. I'll use Romans chapter 8, the last half of that chapter, as another one. And we could go on and on and on. But that's, I think we've covered that enough so far. The warnings admonish believers to press on and obtain all that God has promised to the faithful. Overcomer. That's really what it's all about. Now, these warnings represent the very real possibility of the loss of privileges or rewards. Yes, there are things that are at risk. Yes, there are things that are lost, not your salvation, though. Why? Because your salvation was paid for 100% by Jesus Christ. That is your justification. But your privileges or rewards for faithfulness will be awarded at the judgment seat of Christ, and that's where we're headed to the final exam. Everybody before that judgment seat is saved. Some are going to fare very well and get crowns and this and that and whatever, and others are going to get through that experience by the skin of their teeth. They, all, of, and, uh, all of them are saved. So what is at stake then? What are they going to lose? Not their salvation. Rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what it's really at all about. And you can't, uh, you can't escape any of this by trying to apply this to other groups. This is us. Even though we're not Jewish, it still applies to us. The burden of the epistle of Hebrews is not trying to rescue sinners from going to hell. It's bringing sons to glory. It's taken for granted that the reader's already saved. The question is, what next? So here's the primary riddle, verses 6 through 4 through 6. The danger of relapse and forfeiting the inheritance is the issue. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves, son of God afresh, put him to open shame. Okay. Were these really believers? 
It's amazing how many commentators try to say, well, gee, maybe they weren't really believers in the first place. They were once enlightened. They have tasted of the heavenly gift. They were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. They have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the coming age, of the millennium. And it's amazing how many commentaries are filled with people trying to see, well, they were once enlightened, but they didn't really get it. Uh, they've tasted the heavenly gift, but they really didn't swallow or something. And uh, they were made partakers, but maybe not all the way. I mean, it's it, it, it really interesting to see learned scholarship try to wrestle out from the direct meaning of the Greek. Can these who have, can they lose their salvation? That's the thing that will lurk. That will bother you until you really nail this thing. So the question that I left you with last time is how does this passage impact your views of eternal security? Is there a footnote? Is there a caveat? Are you saved but? Is there a parenthesis in your commitment? Or are you really certain? So I ask you to prepare for this session to re-examine Numbers 14 and we're going to go through that and study carefully this chapter and formulate your own anal analysis. If your students here and have you turn in your papers, you explain what you think that passage means to you. There are 16 different views that I conceivably could come up with. In fact, I, I'm going to show you a 17. One of the alternatives, they were professing but not real believers. That's one approach. Well, they claimed they were per se, but they weren't really. That's, that's one approach. You can destroy that, by the way. Others say they were true, truly saved, but they were permanently lost. That's what the Arminian would say. The Calvinist would argue you can't lose it once you got it, but you may not have it. Okay, <laughs> whatever. Others say the word impossible doesn't really mean impossible. Maybe it just means difficult. <laughs> okay? That's not what it says, but that's a view. Some say that they can repeatedly get lost and resaved, lost and resaved, but there's a limit to that. That's another strange discussion. And some of them say, well, this really refers to the Old Testament sacrifices. That's really out in left field. Some say this whole argument was just hypothetical, didn't really apply. And there, each one of these has variations, so I'm not going to take you through 16 variations. That's the flavor of it. There are variations of all these. Okay. Let's jump in and take a look at the text. For it is impossible for a group. What group? For those who were once enlightened and have tasted for the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. The, the verse 4 is the first verse of a th three-verse sentence. This is one long sentence that's going to Un un unfold before us. We have three qualifiers. It is impossible with, for people that fit these three, there, there's five altogether, five qualifiers that were once enlightened. What do we enlighten? The word is regenerated. Regenerated. And uh, it's the same word as used in, as in Hebrews 10.32 and elsewhere. It means regenerated by the Holy Ghost. They were saved. You can't escape that. There are a few places where that word is not as clear, but in Hebrews 10.32, it nails it. And, uh, okay, who tasted the heavenly gift. They say, tasted, well, it means he didn't really savor it. Well, I got a problem with that, because that in Hebrews 2.9, that same word is used of Jesus Christ, who tasted death for every man. I don't think he sipped. You know, I don't think he had a sample. He tasted death. There's nothing halfway about that. These people have tasted, same word, of the heavenly gift. Okay. It's a real experience is the point. Hebrews 2.9. 
The third one, they're made partakers of the Holy Ghost. A real partaking, that's the metakos. And it's used in Hebrews 2.14. It's in Hebrews 3.1 and 3.14. It's going to be a very key word through our whole study, the metakoi. Partakers, seriously partaking. Okay, we've got two more. And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. These are the two, these are the two remaining part, participle, uh, participles. Now, they have seen miracles and signs. We learned that in Hebrews chapter 2. They've seen that. And they also, the powers of the world to come. The word world there is eon, but when it's singular, it means a time dimension, a messianic age. It isn't, when it's plural, it means worlds. It's a broad term. Eon means a specific age or, or a, 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 a period of time. And it's alluding to the millennium, the powers of the millennium. They have understood the glory that awaits Christ and his metakoi, his partakers, in the coming millennial kingdom. But they apparently, we'll see, have turned their way to go back to the world. That's what we're talking about here. The people we're seeing here in the epistle are in the same position as the Exodus generation at Kadesh Barnea. They've come out of Egypt, they're saved, but they're being confronted to go in and take up, take, uh, to, uh, take their possession, their inheritance, the land. They're refusing to go in. Let's take a look at this grammatically. Let's t there are five qualifying participles. Now, what is a participle? That's a verb, a form of a verb that's used to form complex tenses, as was loving, has loved, forever. It also is can used in, in a uh, construction to serve as an adjective. Don't let the word participle throw you. Adunaton is the word impossible, and it's the people for whom this is impossible are listed. We're once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, made partakers, have tasted the good word of God, coming age. We don't have to beat this to death. Clearly, though, it has in focus people who are really, truly saved. Anybody have a problem so far? Okay. Each one of these participles are a verb used as an adjective in the aorist tense. That means the action is completed. They were once enlightened, once and for all. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have, it's completed. They have. They have made partakers. They have. It's completed. Aorist means it's done. It's a done deal. Okay? There's one, when it says of the coming age, the word coming there is not aorist because it's yet future. Now then we get to verse 6 here. If they fall away, it's impossible for all those that if they fall away to renew them again into repentance, seeing they crucify themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to open shame. To renew them, that's the, that's, this is the thorn in the whole thing. This group, it's impossible to renew them again unto repentance. We're going to explore what that means in a minute, but first of all, let's understand these dependencies. There are three of these. It's impossible for this group, if they are falling away, if they're crucifying Christ afresh, or if they're publicly ridiculing. Now, it turns out that these three, if, if they fit those three, it's impossible, it connects... The impossibility is connected to being restored by repentance by three participles. Two of these are errorist, complete, one of these are errorist, complete action. Two of these are 
present tense, present active, which means these things are continuing. From just the Greek grammar, the impossibility pertains as long as these two stay active. Once they're all errorist, then the impossibility disappears. That's just the grammar of it, okay? Okay, you got this in mind before I go on? Okay. See, the impossibility continues during the present state of crucifying and present state of reading. The grammar of the passage connotes that the main verb of the sentence, the verb to be, and its descriptive aorist participles that modify it, that's in verses 4 and 5, are all limited and defined by the present tense of the participles in verse 6. Saying it another way, the actions described by the aorist participles <laughs> occurred during the time that these two are active, crucifying to themselves and the public ridiculing. After the person stops these two actions, at which those times those behaviors become past tense, not present tense, as soon as they're ceased, the impossibility of renewal or restoration no longer applies, since they no longer are present tense activities. See, the present tense activities is what empowers the impossibility, grammatically speaking. I'm just, it's, a it's a long, complicated sentence in the Greek grammar, but we need to understand it. Once these two present actions cease, the impossibility is removed. Now, if the impossibility were described by the author was permanent, these two present tense participles would have been errorist they would be described with errors participles. So the very grammatical structure is one that is not permanent, but temporary. That's not obvious when you read it in the English. It's clear in the rigors of the Greek. We're not through, but I just want to show you that just grammatically the problem can go away. But obviously the author does use present tense participles there. And thus he gives hope to those who might otherwise be hopeless. The author had used errors participles for the verbs crucify and ridicule. Anybody who fell away for a season could never have been removed to repentance, but he didn't use errors, he used present tense. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does that, am I getting across? It's a little complicated, a little technical, but it is a Greek sentence, and we need to understand the Greek grammar to get it across. And this is typical of translation problems from Greek to English. Every Greek verb has to meet five different conditions. Mood, tense, and all kinds, five of them. And it often takes three or four or five sentences to translate just one Greek verb. That's why in trying to render Greek into English, the translators are often faced with some really difficult decisions, and the way they resolve those decisions can be influenced by the point that they're trying to make to you in English. You follow me? And some of those biases are deliberate, and some are accidental. In any case, the impossibility referred to uh, uh, is an impossibility of, to being restored to repentance. Even granted, the repentance here, the, the, the impossibility has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with being restored to repentance. What does that mean? Most people haven't thought through what that means. I'm going to tell you that virtually every major commentator I've met misses, they argue this well, because they understand it doesn't attack your eternal security, they build their case on the Greek grammar. They haven't looked carefully enough, I believe, in this issue of what the word repentance really means, but I'll get to that. 
But in any case, this impossibility has to do not with your salvation, but it has to do with being restored to repentance. And the restored to repentance is connected by the verbs occurring only during the time described by the two present tenses. So even that impossibility is a very limited case. But I want to move a little bit and I want you to understand what we mean when we say God is immutable. We use that term, God is immutable. He changes not, right? He changes not, okay? We're going to take a look at Numbers 14. The Israelites there at Kadesh Barnea, that's the, the model for this whole epistle, so angered God that he swore on his own name. Now that should get arrest us right. God doesn't run around swearing. But several times in the scripture, God swears an oath. When he does that, he is indicating something that is beyond repentance. Something about which he cannot change his mind. You with me so far? Listen carefully. So he, he, he was so angry that he swore in his own name that they would not enter the promised land. God made up his mind and he would not repent. It's God's repentance I'm focusing on. God would not change his mind. All right? So I want us to take the time, this is so important, we're going to re-examine Numbers 14, but I'm going to pick it up by taking Numbers 13. Let's just take a look, a very careful look, and see what we can learn from Kadesh Barnea. First question is, what do these people have in common? Shamua, Shaphat, Egal, Caleb, Oshea, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amil, Sethur, Nachbi, Gil. These are the son of these various people. I won't try to mispronounce their names for you. What do these people have in common? Anybody have a guess? These, that's right, these were the spies. These were the 12 guys that were selected to spy out the land, right? Out of these 12, they came from each from a different tribe. Reuben, Simeon, Judah, Issachar, right on through the 12 tribes, right? Only two of them inherited their got their inheritance. Ten of them did not get the inheritance God had set out for them. Caleb and Oshea, who is, becomes Joshua. We know him as Yehoshua or Joshua. So let's take a look at this. Numbers 13. These are the names of the men which Moses spy, sent to spy out the land. Moses called Oshea, the son of Nun, Yehoshua. This is where he gets the name you and I are more familiar with. And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Get you up this way southward and go up into the mountain and see the land, what it is, and the people that dwelleth therein, whether they be strong or weak or few or many. Like a military commander. Let's see, what, what are we up against? And what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds. And what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether it be wood therein or not, and be of ye of good, care, good courage, and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob as the men came to Hamath. They ascended by the south, came into Hebron, and uh, where Ahiman, Shishai, Talmai, the children of Anak were. Now Anak were the giants, the Anakim, right? Now, Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt, little footnote there. And they came unto the brook of Eshgal and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes. Now, get this <laughs> one cluster of grapes, right? 
But it took two men on a pole to carry it. That's some bunch of grapes, right? They bear it between the two on a staff, and they brought it, uh, and they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs and so forth. Uh, the place was called the Brook Escrawl because of the cluster of the grapes that the children of Israel cut down from thence. This is one of the artists, classic artists, rendering of them carrying the grapes of Eshkol. The two guys and a pole and the grapes are the symbol of the minister of tourism of Israel today. And they call that the grapes, the, the grapes of Eshkol. But moving on here. They returned from searching of the land. After 40 days, they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel into the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Good news. Nevertheless, uh-oh, the people be strong that dwell in the land. The cities are walled, uh-oh, and are very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there, the Anakim in the plural. Hmm? The, uh, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are able to overcome it. This is Caleb talking. He's our kind of guy. There's probably always someone in the back row saying there's always 3% that don't get the word, right? But the men that went up with him said... We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land, which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up its inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. They actually were giants, some of them. And there we saw the giants. The word is actually Nephilim, the sons of Anak which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. So we were in their sight. You and I tend to look at that as an exaggeration. When you start studying the Nephilim, they're not exaggerating my much. You're talking 9 foot, 13 foot kinds of characters. That's a little rough to do hand to hand with. So the Nephilim. This is, in verse 33 is where the word Nephilim actually appears, not just Genesis 6. Well, that brings us to Genesis chapter 14. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt. They'll get their chance. Or would God that we had died in this wilderness. Wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? They said to one another, Let us make a captain and let us return unto Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. This is a dark day. Dark day. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jehunah, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. Joshua and Caleb toward their... That's a typical gesture in Jewishness of, of, of despair, to tear your, to rent your clothes. And they speak unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then He will bring us into this land and give it us a land which floweth with milk and honey. 
Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Gutsy guys. But it's two guys against ten, huh? I love what J. Vernon McGee says. This is why he doesn't believe in committees in church work. <laughs> but all the congregation bade stone them with stones. Wow. That's sort of bearing a grudge, isn't it? And all the congregation bade them stone them with stones. The glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. That must have got their attention. The Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? You know, we could stop here and just enumerate the signs. You know, the ten plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, go on and on and on and on. I will smite them with pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation mightier. He's going to start over. Let's scratch them. He did that back in Genesis 6, didn't he? Started the world over with eight people. He's ready to do it again. I'll smite them with pestilence and I will... Dis what? That's an interesting word. People miss that word. I will disinherit them. They're saved. They're not going back to Egypt. They'll die in the wilderness. We'll make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. Now, I love, this, is the, this is the part you have to read with a real New York Jewish accent. I can't do that. <laughs> Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear it. <laughs> For thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them, and they will tell it to their inhabitants of this land. For they have heard that thou, Lord, art among his people, and that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by day time in a pillar of a cloud and in a pillar of fire by night. See what Moses is doing? He's appealing to the Lord's pride. <laughs> now if thou kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them. Therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. <laughs>